0: What is up, everybody? This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org, and I'm your host, Dave Stovall. In this episode, Aaron Brockett and Bart Shaw explore the history and mission of their church, Trader's Point, and highlight the importance of intentionally investing in the next generation and removing barriers to Jesus. Their church aims to equip parents as the primary disciple makers in the lives of their children through their family discipleship resources, and they give us practical steps And disciple-making and emphasize the role of, this is that phrase again that we hear all the time, prayer and fasting and total dependence on God. Let's let Aaron and Bart encourage us today and share with us insights from their church, how they are turning their parents into disciple-makers, and how we can do the same at our church. Enjoy the episode, everybody. Well, Aaron, I'd love for you to maybe kick us off and talk a
1: little bit about who we are as a church, how we got here. Just set that kind of 30,000 foot view for people who maybe don't know, or even just refresher for those that are connected to Trader's Point. Who are we? What are we about? Yeah,
2: Yeah. I think when I'm talking to people, a lot of people assume that this was a church plant, which it was just in 1834. (laughs) This is a really old church, one of the oldest churches that I know of. There's one other church led by my friend, uh, Ben Kacharis in Joppa, Maryland. They're a few years older than us. So this is a long, rich history. And most of our church's existence was we were just a small little rural church on the outskirts of Indianapolis for a long time. Maybe just a church of 100 people all the way up through maybe the 1950s. And then in the 1950s and 60s, God began to do a work in and do this church and became more of a neighborhood church in the Trader's Point area. And uh, we had, I I would say there's several different things that attributed to its fruitfulness. And one was just like long tenured leadership. And so um, for most of this church's history, pastors would be here for about two years and then they would move on. And that wasn't maybe so uncommon during the time. I think that for a lot of churches, they didn't have enough to maybe pay a full-time salary of a pastor. But then there was a lot of pastors who just saw themselves as purely evangelists. I know my grandfather retired from the ministry. He was in the ministry for 40 years. And that was his philosophy is he just said, I'm going to go to a church. I'm going to reach all the people that I can. And after about five, six years, I think that's probably about the number of people that I can personally reach and I'm going to move on. And it's a weird kind of philosophy, but that was the philosophy at the time. And that was true here until about the 1970s. And there was a pastor that stayed here 14 years. And I think that really established a lot of, of stability for the church. And then the guy who preceded me, Howard Bramer, was here for 24 years, just a class act, did an amazing job. And the church continued to grow. And his kind of last Vision cast that he had in his ministry here was to relocate us to this location that we're currently at. And what it did was it made us a regional church. And so we started reaching, because of our access to the highway, we started reaching people from much, much further distances than what we did when we were in a neighborhood. And so that shaped a lot of who we were becoming as a church. When I got here about 15 and a half years ago, the, the life cycle of the church had kicked over. And we had a guy that came in by the name of Jim Tomberlin who talked to us about that. He said, most churches' life cycles are about 40 to 50 years from the time that they get planted to from their fruitfulness in ministry to maybe this season of a painful season of like maybe plateau decline and eventually they close their doors. And we know lots of churches close their doors every year. And he said, 40 to 50 years represents a life cycle. It really, it's a generation. And that really hit me is that if at some point the preceding generation doesn't pass the baton of mission and vision to the next, it's inevitable that the church will plateau and decline. And so we've just tried to be really intentional about making sure that we are investing and pouring into the next generation, Uh, which means we've got to reach people that are far from Christ, but it's not enough to reach them and to draw a crowd, which is why this is so important to us, is that they need to be discipled. And we'll talk a little bit more about really like our deepening convictions on that here in just a minute but then also passing the baton to the next generation. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. One of the, when we were developing the mission statement for our church, which for this crowd, you probably all know that your mission statement should come out of Matthew
0: 28.
2: (laughs) Your mission statement doesn't sound anything like Matthew 28. There's probably something wrong. And so for us, we had the Great Commission. And there was two other passages that really informed the way we state our mission statement. And our mission statement, if, yeah, I know we've got some traitors point people in here that are going to know this, but for those that don't, our mission statement is we want to remove unnecessary barriers that keep people from Jesus. The basis of that, obviously, is the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. And then the, the second passage would be when John the Baptist was quoting um, the prophet Isaiah. And when they asked him, they said, are you the Messiah? And he's, man, I'm not the Messiah. I am just here to clear the way for the Messiah. That's a key passage for us. And because Jesus said, I'll draw people unto myself. And if he's drawing people and they're not coming, what's standing in the way? So that's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about. And then the third passage is, is Mark chapter two. And the, the friends who lowered their paralytic uh, friend through a hole in the roof, they just literally tore a hole in the roof. They said, this isn't going to be a barrier uh, that's gonna um, uh, keep uh, our friend from Jesus. And so we've taken those three passages and really merged them together. And that's become our mission statement is we want to remove not barriers that keep people from Mm -hmm. Jesus because there are some barriers we should not remove. The gospel is offensive in and of itself. We're not watering things down. We're not lowering the bar. But there are some unnecessary barriers that we don't want to stand in the way. And we want to
1: remove those so that way we can get people Mm -hmm. to Jesus. That's great. And you've done a great job leading out with that. Most people that have been a part of our church in a short period of time, they know that's our mission to remove unnecessary barriers. Yeah. So let's go ahead and talk. Let's move back to the Great Commission a little bit. Let's talk about disciple making in our lives. And I'd love to to have you share from your experience, like where have you personally been discipled in your life? Tell us that story. Where are you making disciples in your life? Let's paint that picture.
2: Yeah. So I'm a church brat, Mm -hmm. I think probably like you. Mm -hmm. And so grew up in church. And it wasn't until probably my freshman year of college, I stayed in the same town that I grew up in and went to Bible college. And I had a handful of individuals that, and here's how I would maybe quote it, is that they invited me to go on a trip with them. I had a professor who was going to be preaching at a Wednesday night service at a church three and a half hours away. And he just asked me to stay after class. And he said, hey, would you want to go with me? And so it was that proximity with him in the car, that conversation, and then from that he actually invited me into a group where we, with some other um, students, that he poured and invested into us, and I still actually stay uh, in touch with them. And and proximity, hey, come come with me as I go do this. So I'm like watching him interact with people, watching him preach and teach, he invited me into a group of smaller guys to actually study and to hold accountable and to pour into. It. And the third element is I would just say he challenged me to something. Like, hey, why don't you go do this? Why don't you go serve in this way? Why don't you go lead a group? Which is really, that's how I was invited into it. That's how it's been modeled for me. And that's really how I do it now. I'm going to find some guys that I I love their hearts and I see some potential in it. And like, hey guys, would you want to travel with me? Uh, I was just on the phone with a, a guy in our church. This was probably, this precedes you. He was a college student in our church maybe 12 years ago. And, and he asked me to go to lunch with him at Chick-fil-A. And this was before we had the Chick-fil-A across the street. It was over on 86th Street. We had to drive long distances back in the day. to so get a little bit of Christian chicken. And I remember going to uh, lunch with him and he goes, I, I want to pick your brain on something. And so we sat down in a booth. He was in law school at the times. And he said, I feel like God's calling me into ministry. And I'm getting ready to, he was a third year law student. And he goes, I'm getting ready to tell my mom and dad who have paid for my law school that I want to drop out of law school and go to seminary and go into the ministry. And so we prayed together. He actually, that's actually what he did. I was just on the phone with him last week. He hmm. pastors a church in Florida and he was just calling me to pick my brain on some things that they're leading and navigating hmm. through. And it'd been a little while since I talked to him. And I, guys like that, hmm. where I got to, and he traveled with me some, he did a residency with us so to, and so to see them, see their heart, and then to say, hey, why don't you come with me on something? Let's hang out. Let's mm-hmm. spend some time together. Then it gets invited into maybe a more formal group where we're studying something, some accountability, and, and then a challenge. Mm-hmm. Hey, guys, I want you to go do this. And that's just the way that it's been modeled for me, and that's mm-hmm. just the way that I intuitively do it. Mm-hmm. That's great. What about you?
1: Yeah. First of all, so you're saying all good discipling relationships start at Chick-fil-A. A and might take notes on
2: I'd, that. I'd say 99.9%.
1: <laughs> Can, I'm not going to disagree with that. <laughs> yeah. So our stories are similar, not the same, but I did grow up in the church too. We were talking about that yesterday. I was, Awana was like the first thing that was exposed. Yeah. So <laughs>
2: talk, we're talking about Air Jordans yesterday. Yeah. He's the only pair of Air Jordans I got was whenever I won
1: Woods. was it a and Bible a, sword drill. It was like a Bible memorization thing in Iwana. And I was right? like, that yeah. is a total Bart Shaw story. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. It was a lot, man. I memorized a lot of scripture <laughs> to <it was> <laughs> To
2: get your Air Jordans.
1: I got them. Bri- bribery works. It's a great discipleship tool. Bribe children into the kingdom. It worked really well. So I was involved with Awana and that was helpful in helping me understand scripture, began yep. to read it. I didn't really understand about disciple making. I was also a kid. So there's a lot of things there. Like a lot of people who grew up in the church, you go out, if you go to college or move out on your own, that's a real crisis of faith. Am I going to believe this thing that I've inherited or is it my own? And I went to university. I was at Purdue and uh, my freshman year at a lot of things that I was up against. Maintain and, your faith through all that. Wow. Yeah, it, it's Wow. It's, it's just real tough. <laughs> And so, I, spending time there, I got involved with Campus Crusade. So right now, they're called Crew now, but Campus Crusade for Christ. And it it fundamentally changed my view of disciple making because they came in with a very simple strategy to win people to Christ, to build them up, and to send them out. Win builds in. That's it. And I had a guy named Darren who said, "Hey, I, I see this in you. I'd love to spend time with you to help you grow as a disciple and share your faith and go do that with other people." I'm like, I've never heard of that before. Yeah, L- let's go. And so we did, and that really began to form and for who I was as a Mm -hmm. disciple-maker. I went to seminary, and when I went to seminary, great experience there. I wouldn't trade it, but they didn't really train me on how to make disciples. A lot of great things in theology, hermeneutics, Mm. critical thinking, even some functional things in the church, but not necessarily disciple-making. And in retrospect, I think that was a miss. Mm -hmm. And I went into ministry, and I was a discipleship and teaching pastor for 11 years before I came here out of church. And the first probably half of that time I I just did ministry the way that things worked and operated. And I really never recaptured that heart for disciple-making. until about halfway through. And I got involved with a few organizations that were really helpful, Leadership Network, 3DM, were really influential. Mike Brain's book, Building the Disciple-Making Culture, was really helpful for me. And he said, one of the things that he said that always stuck with me, he said, if you seek to build the church, you rarely get disciples. But if you seek to build disciples you always get the church. Mm, that's good. And I was like, man, there's the fundamental like flipping of that. I'm like, yeah. yeah, that's so true. And I've seen that and I began to see it as we began to build disciples and replicate them. Uh, they had ownership and agency where they were then making disciples who made disciples. And that's what we want. We want to mobilize people, not just build and add people. And so I began to see that and see fruit there. And, and, and I continue on that journey. Here, we're up against those same things, fighting some of the, the waves of culture and even church culture to move towards disciple making, discipleship.org and other groups like this have been really helpful. And so now I have the same opportunity to do the same thing with other people. Microgroups we'll talk more about that as a, as a piece where I'm investing in guys who are investing in others, lead small groups, things like that as well is, is what that looks like for me. Aaron, can you speak a little bit more then to like where you see us going? And when I say us, I think maybe us as a church, but like, where do you see the church going? Like when you look at the church, you look at disciple making, you look at what's ahead of us, you look at multiplication. Like you're a visionary. I know you think about some of those things. What do you think it's going to take for us and for the bigger us to take some of those steps? It's a big question.
2: Yeah, it's a huge question. I think that what what, I'm gonna operate from this principle right here that everybody is being discipled by something or someone right now, whether they know it or not. And so I think that we just gotta operate from that basic assumption. That discipleship, at least, there's probably lots of different definitions. I'm sure that whatever your definition of discipleship is, I'm going to go with that one because I'm sure that it's the best one. No. But when I think about it, I have Jordans to prove it. But yeah, <laughs> When I think about it from my lens, I think about it's whatever I'm being formed into, that's what I'm being discipled by. So it's what I think about. It's what I do with my resources and my time. It's the fruits of the Spirit in my life. What am I watching? What am I, Who am I spending time with? We're all being formed into the image and likeness of something or someone. The question is, we've got to uh, really get very specific to drive down on is is what? Mm. And we just operate from the assumption that everybody that comes to our church is being discipled. The question is, are they being discipled by us into the image and likeness of Jesus or into the image and likeness of the world?
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And I think the real challenge is that I think pre-COVID, committed Christians were in church about 1.7 times a month. And post-COVID, I think that number's dropped probably somewhere around once, maybe once a month. And there would be others that wouldn't be true. They'd be here more weekends than that. But even if you just say that that somebody is going to be here every single Sunday for one hour, that's one hour a week out of the whole week. And 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 then the rest of the week, what are they being discipled by? And we're being discipled by news media, we're being discipled by our phones and social media. So the challenge is like so huge. Right. And we can't rely upon Sunday morning as as important as that is, we can't rely upon that to do the whole thing. There's just right. no way right. that we're gonna form disciples through a Sunday morning service. So this is where I think we're beginning to think through our strategies around, okay, how do we and discipleship can't rest upon the staff. Now the staff can create structure for it and, and invite opportunities. But if a church is going to really be a disciple-making movement, our people have to be right. involved. Right. They've got to roll right. up their sleeves and be involved in it. Everybody's got to be doing this. Everybody's mm-hmm. got to be involved in it and in the lives of others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I'm curious as to what kind of shifts are required. We hear, on this whole conference, we're talking with Shadonke and people like that. Prayer and fasting is a big part yeah. of that. I'm just... I'm dreaming. I think we're dreaming as a church. Like what are the things that we need to do to make those shifts? And one of the things we talked about this week that we haven't even talked about yet, but this shift from Sunday being game time to being halftime, hmm. like a locker room speech that really sends them out to go do the stuff as opposed to this is the thing. Mm-hmm. And like, I think we, it's just part of the tension we manage in our culture and, and what's helpful for our people. Yeah. And so there's a lot of shifts like that I'm sure we could dive into, but that's helpful. Anything else, Sarah?
2: No, I think you're right. I think language matters. I, yeah. th- every now and then, I think our, whoever's like wrapping up the service will say, hey, you're sent. So it's this idea of just reminding people mm-hmm. that they're being sent uh, out the doors into the end of their weeks. I think I think it, it terminology, even in like our teaching and our messages, like in the application, it mm-hmm. can, I, I'll say this every now and then. Every time I say it, no, it feels like I get deer in the headlights look from our people. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're contemplating this. Or it's just missing. But say um, it right
1: now, and I'll test. I'll test yeah, get give, give
2: a real good look. But whenever I'm teaching specifically through the epistles, and I'll say, if we're gonna uh, understand the text and apply it, we first need to realize this was written to we, not me. Hmm. Meaning, see, you are doing it again. <laughs> so it's the idea. No, I think I, this is just sharp truth. They probably know what I'm talking about. Is that, that all the epistles? They weren't written to individuals. They were written to churches. Hmm. They're written to groups of people. So if you're going to understand the meaning of a text, see, this is where it's even in a lot of our individual Bible reading or I've been a part of groups. I'm sure you've been a part of groups where the question is, well, hey, let's just go around the circle and say what the passage means to you. Mm. It's a horrible question mm. because it's bad hermeneutics because the we first have to say, what was the original meaning of the, to the original audience? Mm. And it was a group of people. Yeah. So this is applied to groups. And a lot of times in our individual Bible reading, we're trying to say, well, what does this passage mean for me? Not that it doesn't have an application for us, but we first have to Mm -hmm. apply it to the group. And I think there's these shifts that we just, the little things that we need to pay attention to where we always need to include others in our journey. Yeah. Whenever we ask people, tell me about your conversion story or your growth story. There's always people that mention other people's names. That's discipleship. Yeah. And so we don't just do this one-on-one. We do this with others. Yeah.
1: We've been building out and, and creating, imagining our discipleship pathway. We'll get to that. I'm curious, do you think it's helpful to talk about the Great Commission engine at all and the pistons and how that operates behind the scenes for us to be intentional about
2: making disciples? Well, so, yeah, you know, a, a big thing for us as a staff, you know, at what drives where we put time, energy, and resources is what we call the Great Commission engine. And so it's, um, uh, no God, mm-hmm. um, uh is it find life-giving relationships life-giving relationships make a difference Mm -hmm. and and those are like the pistons of an engine and so we're trying to help people know god we're trying to help people find life-giving relationships and then make a difference and that just ha over over and over again and so i think that we're trying to be really intentional about each of those pistons and make sure that that fine life-giving relationships piece is that piece of getting people in closer proximity to others where they can be discipled and make disciples yeah Yeah, that's great.
1: Anything you'd add to that? Anything I'm missing on that? No, not on the engine, but I can speak to maybe the pathway of where we're starting to go. The engine is what drives us as a church. Aaron said that the Great Commission is our goal. That's what we're going for. But there's got to be some frameworks that help people move through that process. And I can unpack that a little bit of what that looks like. And we have three spaces that we really filter people to. And as you are leading other churches, some of you or some of you that are watching, you should probably think through some of those lenses. This is nothing new to us. It's ultimately Jesus. He had A large group of people that followed him is his kind of crowds of disciples that could have been 70, the 120, 500. There was a larger space where people could connect with Jesus in a little bit less committal way. He had then his 12, right? He had his apostles, the disciples that he invested in. That's that small group space that many of us will have in our churches with 8, 10, 12, 14 people. And then he also had a micro group space. He had His three, Peter, James, and John, he invested in more deeply. He brought and gave them access to things he didn't give the others access to. So we think through it in those spaces. How can we meet people at different parts of their journey? And we have built out three intentional spaces, that large, small, and micro group space. And they're all a work in progress always. Uh, Rooted is something we've adopted and put into that large group space. And some of you, if you're at other churches, maybe utilize that or familiar. It's a great tool. We didn't uh, invent it. It's it's one that's been used in a lot of churches and it's just really helpful. It fit our strategy of where we were at and the season that we were in. And so we've adopted that in the last year and we've seen just
2: tremendous fruit. It's gone over better than I thought it would.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree the same. I was optimistic, but I don't think we understood how hungry people were and how it made that bar really easy for people. It lowered it just enough where there's commitment but but they could still jump, right? And it still called them to yeah. something. Yeah. And so it's a 10-week experience for those that don't know. And we do that three times a year. There's a whole curriculum that goes with it. It's really an experience designed to help people know God, know the church, know their purpose. And we've seen just tons of fruit. We just finished up a class a few weeks ago. We had 56 people that got baptized at the end of that. And that was unbelievable. Every class we've done has had, yeah. this is scaled to us. So this isn't uh, anything about numbers, but we've had 500, 700, 700 people in these classes, we've maxed them out a couple of times and people are hungry and it's limited to one night a week and they have to come 10 times. It's been amazing how many people have sacrificed to make that happen. And it's building in our church, some of the DNA that we want to see. There are spiritual rhythms being built in these people's lives where they're taking steps they've never taken before that are right in line with what we want to see and disciple making, and then it sets them up well for those other spaces yeah. when they get into small groups or into micro groups. And gotten, a large percentage yeah.
2: want to stay together as groups. Anyway, right. Which is, I don't know if
1: that was something that you anticipated before we launched it. Our- we knew it was a possibility. I don't think we knew it would be, as, be as, as significant, as, right? as, significant so, yeah. as it was. Right. Yeah. yeah, we've had a high percentage of those groups that will stay together. And then they have that shared experience, that shared kind of DNA of this is what we're about. And it really has some disciple making DNA, heavy spiritual rhythms. And we're just so tickled, man. It's just pleased to see that God is using it as a tool in this season for our church where we're seeing lives change and people are coming alive. Mm -hmm. Our small group space then will have three or 4,000 people in those adult groups all around the city. And we have hundreds of leaders that we're supporting. That's our bread and butter. That's where a lot of people get in community with one another. They grow to be more like Jesus. And we're constantly working to try to help build more disciple-making principles into those groups. What we found is it's very difficult to just raise the bar really high. A lot of people enter in small groups. and so. They may not even be a follower of Jesus yet. It's very hard to raise that discipleship bar if you have standard small groups. And so we felt that there was a need for a smaller space in this season. And so we created in the last year microgroups. And so a lot of churches will use tools like these. We've adapted from some and built out our own. Um, But that's been a big piece where we're beginning to see like replication happen. And microgroups,
2: this isn't anything like we've announced on Sunday morning. No. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So don't tell anybody. <laughs> it's a secret. Uh, no, it's, it's been intentionally organic because for one, we're piloting it. We really want to test to see how effective it is. And we want it to be organic. Some of it is it's also invite. It's not exclusive, but it's like, hey, let me disciple Pers- you and a couple other people. Yeah, so We're not
2: relying on the platform to in- right. invite people. We're relying on people to invite. Right.
1: People. And yeah. we don't have a structure for it. And we don't know that's the most helpful. And so it is very much come and see. Right. And so I'll disciple you and a couple other people and then Six months later, we built you to the point where you've equipped enough to go replicate that and go invite three other people into your life and invest in them and then just keep reproducing. So we, I started, the, I think, the first group or two about less than a year ago. We have maybe 20 of those groups now that have replicated and they're starting to get second, third generation of people who have been discipled. We're now discipling others. Um, it's intentional. It's not perfect. There's lots of things out there like that. No
2: discipleship model is. There's
1: none. That's the thing.
2: thing. I I even look back at Jesus' discipleship model with Mm -hmm. the 12 disciples that always just continues to baffle me is that you look at the the results of Jesus' discipleship group. Yeah. Wow. Like they bailed on him. They couldn't Mm -hmm. stay awake and pray with him. One took his life. One betrayed him. You're like, if you're judging, if you're assessing Jesus as a small group leader. You'd be yeah. like, oh, <laughs> maybe you might want to try uh, kids' ministry. Yeah. <laughs> but so I think for all of us, I think we just need to, that's not, that shouldn't be like a cop-out for not trying. Right. Don't hear me say that. But to also say discipleship is messy. Yep. There, there have been, as I look back over like 25 years of ministry, there have been people that I've invested so many hours into and so much time and effort that have ultimately broken my heart and just walked away from everything. And then there are others that I feel really guilty that I haven't invested more time and energy into. And then I check back in with them to see how they're doing. And they've started three churches. (laughs) And so it's this really like uneven, like because people are unpredictable and messy. And I think that's part of, I think the church's struggle with this is how do you measure it? Right. And how do you know if you're being effective in it? And I think there's some things that we can look to, Mm -hmm. but there's also people are unpredictable and messy. And we just got to recognize there's no perfect model. But I think what we want to do is replicate what jesus did yeah. where he was just getting in close proximity with these guys being super intentional and is recognizing that and he knew whenever he called them all to be his disciples mm-hmm. that they were going to mess up yeah that shouldn't keep us from doing the same good word aaron yeah yeah I,
1: you can't do nothing right you have to do something and i think that's the takeaway for today essentially mm-hmm. is like wherever you're at don't do nothing it's not sufficient you can't do everything either but do something mm. yeah there's a lot of great tools out there none of them are right or wrong or perfect some are better or worse depending on your context but do something so there are some goals that we're shooting for and i'll talk a little bit more about that in micro so primary goals in our microgroup space there's four kind of main tenets we have transparent relationships obedience to god's word high accountability and then ultimately multiplying disciple makers Those are the four things that we really shoot towards. We want it to be simple, reproducible, effective. Bobby talked about that in our first session. If it's going to be something that's going to take and people can reproduce it, it's got to be simple. Yeah, it's got to be reproducible. It's got to be effective. You have to evaluate it. So that's why we haven't announced much either, because we're still evaluating some of those things. Scripture is the curriculum. That's a big piece of it. There's a ton of great curriculums out there, but we are over curriculatized. I don't know. Is that a word? It is a word. It's a word. Okay. Curriculatized. We have, we have way more resources than we need. Yeah. And put the simple things into practice. God's word is sufficient in and of itself. One of the things we do in that space is we go very slowly. We walk through scripture slow, very deep. It's much like if you drive home from work, you see the same things every time. But if you got a flat tire and you had to walk home, what would you see? Mm-hmm. Entirely different things. Mm-hmm. We go very slow, very intentional so that we can mind for and listen to what God is saying. There's just something fundamentally different about stopping and listening to God's voice and hearing him say something to you and convict your heart in a direction that you marinated in for a week and then you're with some friends that you're accountable to. And you hear God say something and you're like, man, I, I need to do that. That's way different than a life application question at the end of a study. Yeah, That doesn't change your life very rarely. But a lot of times in microgroups, we'll stop for two minutes at the end and we'll just pause and say, God, we, we trust you're here. We have spent time in your word all week. We've heard and seen what Jesus is doing in this instance. Mm-hmm. What are you saying to me? Yeah. And really listening and mining for that. And so that's a big piece of what we do. Another thing is what you're getting at too. What does it look like? Uh, Ultimately, we're trying to look like Jesus, right? But you could ask everyone here, what does Jesus look like? And it might get slightly different answers. There's some things that are universal. We use a kind of a framework, not original to us, but up, in, and out. The very simple idea is that Jesus had three great loves in his life. His upward relationship, in and out. Up with the Father, right? In with his disciples. So not in here, but like his inner circle, those he was intentional about, investing in. And then out, To the world, if you look at Luke chapter six, this is a great place to get this framework. Luke chapter six verses twelve to nineteen. I won't read it, but I can just unpack it for you guys real quick. It's that basic idea: Jesus he heals on the Sabbath, and then he goes to pray. He goes up to the mountain, he prays all night long. We could probably stop there for a while, Shadonke style, right? He just prayed all night long, which is mind blowing to me. And then he comes down from the mountain. He calls his twelve disciples out of this group of people he's with, and he says, "I'm going to invest in you." And he really designates them, follow me at a deeper level. Mm-hmm. In the very next breath, he walks down the rest of the mountain with his disciples and he begins to come and heal people. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's preaching good news. Yeah. I'm like, this is all three of those in seven verses. Mm-hmm. The upward relationship, the in and the out. And so in microgroup and in life, when you try to look like Jesus, that's what you're trying to look like. And it's not a perfect tool, but we evaluate to that like, one to 10, like where are you at? I'm a four in the out. Okay, well, I'm a six or whatever. And then you just begin to walk through and say, God, are you growing me in this? Maybe our whole group is a, a three in the out. We, we probably need to really press in and listen what is God saying to us about sharing our faith, about reaching out to those around us, about loving our neighbor. So that gives us a little bit of a picture of what we're going for. That's what we're trying to replicate in that space, really in all of our spaces. And so we're trying to breed this in our microgroup space so that those people who are gonna lead other groups and lead Rooted and all kinds of other things will have that DNA of I am created to be a disciple who goes and makes other disciples. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I love all that and love your heart for it, Bart. You're doing an incredible job with it. And and I'm excited to see how God's going to continue to use this throughout our church in the months and and years ahead. For everybody that's here today and, and they're listening from like their particular context in which they're doing ministry, what types of recommended steps would you take Or would you recommend to them for them to take out of this? If they're listening to this going, how do we take this and replicate this for our context? What do we do? What would you Mm -hmm. recommend?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Obviously, some of those are nuanced because it depends on context. I can probably answer it in in two different ways. If you are part of Trader's Point, I'm going to speak to you first. If you're part of Trader's Point, maybe on the personal front, I would say start by investing in someone. If you're not intentionally investing in someone, you're not making a disciple. They don't get made by accident. Now, the world's us. all that stuff is very true. But you have to be intentional. Again, the tool is not as important as just the intentionality. So start with someone. I'll share this story because I've shared this with some of our staff before. So for some of you, you've heard it. Some of you might be new. But it hit me like a ton of bricks a handful of years ago. My youngest son, Camden, was in Taekwondo. And I went along with him and it's this whole thing. He really wanted to do it. He was fulfilling my lifelong dream to wax on, wax off, Karate Kid style. I went and I started observing, but I started seeing some incredible things happen. One of the things I observed was that everyone starts out as a white belt. You come in day one, doesn't matter who you are, where you can put your white belt. And the thing was, it was okay to be a white belt, but it wasn't okay to stay a white belt. Mm. See the difference? Mm. People would come in and, hey, you're welcome. We're so glad you're a white belt. But if you're there two weeks later and you're still white belt and you're not starting to level up and belt up, dude, are you sure this is right for you? Have you counted the cost? Are you, I'm like, whoa, this is like a discipleship conversation. You got a white belt sitting in here for six years. Oh, what are you doing? <laughs> We have a lot of white belts we, we sitting in here for six years. Literally. That, that Yeah, that have never taken a step. And I'm like, it wasn't okay to remain a white belt. So that was like a really big epiphany for me. And then I think the next thing that that really stood out to me was when you began to belt up, you would become... A, a yellow belt or an orange belt. Like I'm sure other classes are different, but it was yellow than orange and so on and so forth. It wasn't the master black belt that was teaching mm. those kids. Mm. It was the yellow belt yeah. teaching the white belt. It was the orange belt teaching the yellow belt. The yellow belt had been there like two weeks. Cam learned like one move, hi whatever it was. <laughs> uh, you like that? <laughs> Clearly I didn't take any martial arts. So he, he did the one move and he was then instructed like a week later hey, take all of these white belts, show them your move. That's good. I'm like, this
2: is discipleship. Yeah.
1: You don't, everyone always gets freaked out. I have to have all the answers. I don't have all yeah. the theological. Yeah. That's irrelevant. What has God taught you? What is the Holy Spirit saying? Yeah. Teach teach
2: what you just learned. Yeah. J- just a step at a time.
1: Was, instead, I think,
2: and I, I know I've fallen into this, this whole idea. Well, let me do my Bible reading plan and get through the Bible in a year. Or let me read Grudem's right. Systematic Theology and let me get all these answers first, and then I'll go lead a group and kind of download it. And that's just—it's unrealistic. Yeah. and it's not going to. And it happen.
1: stifles our ability to make disciples. Yeah. And, we,
2: and the need is too urgent.
1: Yes, for us to wait,
2: right? We've got to continue to do it as we go. Yeah, yeah.
1: So that was a big epiphany to yeah. me. And I think the the last thing in that piece was the goal uh, of the master was to make the students what he was. Right. The master was never like I'm better and further away. I've been down the road further. But his entire goal was to make the rest of them, to give agency to every single kid who was there. And so I just saw like discipleship in a nutshell. And so I would say the same thing to you guys today. If you're looking for a tangible next step, it is yellow belt, teach the white belt. Whatever you have learned, whatever God has given you, start to give it away. You will grow exponentially to the next level when you do that. And then find people who are further down the road and get some other tools in the tool belt and give it away. Guys, this is what Jesus did. This is, it's not rocket science. It's very simple but it's very intentional. So that's something I would say on a personal level. For those of you who are not a part of Trader's Point, what can you do? What can you do in your church? What we talked about before, you can't do everything. If you've got a buffet of things, you probably need to thin it out. And we did this a long time ago before my time too, when you went multi-site. You had to say no to a lot of things that are really hard to say no to Yeah, because you had to really streamline. And if we're going to make disciples, even in this season, moving forward, we really have to think hard about like, where is our time, energy, resources going? If it's not helping do that, it's going to be counterproductive. And so I'd say that to other churches too. Really think hard about your systems and your strategies. Keep it very simple, reproducible, and effective like we've talked about.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah, those are some. And then I would say the same thing too. Obviously, yellow belt, teach the white belt. There's tons of resources here. Like we've already said, there's not a perfect way, right way. We're using some tools. We're still developing them and we're trying to leverage them. They'll never be perfect, but they're effective and they're producing Mm -hmm. fruit. We're going to keep refining and tweaking them to keep producing more fruit. This might be a question that's impossible for you to
2: answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh This is all, this becomes like really hard to measure. In a church world where we just measure everything, like, how do you know how you're doing as a church? Well, how many people are showing up and how many people got baptized and how many people are part of participating in programs? If you've got like what we might call like micro groups, where you've got groups of twos and threes meeting together, yellow belts, teaching Mm -hmm. white belts, Mm -hmm. to use that analogy, at what point do you think, from your estimation, what would the differences be within that church and community if you saw, I don't know, fifty percent of your people doing this? Mm-hmm. Is that that maybe that's an impossible question for you to ask? Yeah, I,
1: I don't. That's a great question though. Yeah, I I think what you would see, you'll see mul- multiplication happening. It'd be in the DNA of your people. Yeah, because you're going to see agency, like power to the people. They're going to own their faith in a way they've never owned it before. Yeah, and that's what I've seen where it's like, oh, wow, people are sharing their faith without me telling them to share their faith. Yeah. People are like developing other people without me having to develop yeah. the people. And so I think you're going to see a multiplication becoming a part of the DNA. You should see other fruit too. If you're not seeing new people come to faith, if you're not people seeing people share their faith, it's not just Bible knowledge and literacy. That's not it. That's right. a, an important piece, right. but that's not the end goal. Yeah. It's a means to the end. G-
2: general fruits of the Spirit. Let, let, sure. Let's go there. <laughs> that should be
1: evident. And I even think that
2: even for the staff, that instead of the staff being... The players on the field and the church coming and watch the staff do the ministry, yes. the staff become coaches and the people in the church become players yes. on the field. Right. And right. so we're basically coaching them. Yeah. And so one of the, my favorite things is whenever I hear about somebody who maybe had some significant thing happen in their life, mm. or maybe it's a loss of a loved one, somebody was in the hospital or whatever, and I didn't find out about it until later. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. And they look at me and like, oh, that's okay. We didn't need you. Mm. Like yeah. we had our group around right. us and they, exactly. they, because they were ministering yep. to us, they were around us. Yes. And I think that's because we can unintentionally bottleneck the work that God desires to do through the people. So I think staff need to be coaches. The people need to be players yep. on the field and that's we're good. coaching and equipping so that way that we can continue to replicate that this. Is that's how it has to happen. Right At some point you'll cap. And that's why, honestly, I think a lot of churches do get capped mm. because you've got an exhausted staff trying to do can't all the do it ministry all. Right. and they can't.
1: That's well said, Aaron. And another metric that goes along with that I've heard some churches trying to hold on to is how many uh, people are being baptized in your church by non-staff? Like yeah. how many people are in relationship with someone else who oh, yeah. invited them, who discipled them in their Those are our favorite ones. Uh, you'd probably say the same thing. I did a lot of those rooted baptisms, but then the ones that came through and they wanted their leader to baptize them, I was like, "Let's go." Well, and if you notice, as the years have gone by,
2: I'm in the tank less
1: and less. Yeah, not because I don't want to.
2: Yeah, but because people that have actually been a part of those people's lives are the ones yeah. that are baptizing them. It, it makes and I think sense. That's healthy.
1: And so again, that's not an end all, be all metric, but it does tell you something about you know the fruit of like disciple making in your church. If you have people who are doing the ministry, yeah. that's all we're calling to, to do anyway, right? It's that priesthood of believers, and it's equipping the saints for work of the works of ministry. Yeah, yeah, I love it. That's what we're going for. Yeah, we're not there yet. We're taking steps. We're taking steps. Any other final thoughts for us today? I know we still got a little bit of time. I don't know. I I debated we could take some questions if people had them. So there might be a few, especially I know if they're from other churches and you have some questions too. uh, We can talk offline as well if that's easier. Um, Are there some burning questions?
2: If you were beginning and inviting someone to meet with you, I've heard today multiple times that scripture needs to be the key part. How do you start? Where do you start?
1: I think I'm hearing your question, right? But if, if scripture is a key in all this? Scripture needs to be the curriculum. Like, where do you start? That's great. Rooted, of course, has some a lot of elements of scripture built into it, but it's not heavy on scripture. It's more on the biblical principles and, and the rhythms. Small groups, we're going to do a lot of things. And many of them will study scripture together. Some will jump on our message study each week. Of course, Aaron's going to teach from the Bible every week to some degree. And so there's going to be text there to unpack. In our micro group space, in those groups of three or four people, we are lining out for them a playbook. I didn't say, I guess I can share this with you guys. If you want more information, you can go to our website. You have to go specifically to this link, tpcc.org slash micro-groups. But it does have our guidebook on there that walks people through in those groups. It has a few helpful videos. It kind of sets up high level and a few training things, a little bit of that up in and out. So there's some things a little bit more in depth there. But we walk through what is what we recommend, which is reading through an epistle, Uh, a shorter Old Testament book to switch up kind of the biblical genre of what you're reading to get a wide breadth, and then also a gospel. And so we have a couple paths that we line out for people. Again, these are just tracks to run on. It's not like these are magical, but those things are very helpful because you're gonna hear when you're reading Ephesians and Mark, for example, um, Jonah, whatever those books are, you're gonna get a ton of things that God's gonna speak to you and it, trust me. I've been through them multiple times and I've mixed up a few books and he's still speaking real loud. That's what we'll do in microgroups is we'll help people go through that. And they're reading really just a couple chapters a week. They may do other things than that, but the study itself in the microgroup is going to be a couple chapters. They're going to read it very deeply. They're going to look at some other resources. They're going to read it in multiple translations. They're going to walk through an inductive method to really extract like, God, what are you saying to me? Reading through scripture at a year is a good thing. I'm not saying that's bad. There's value there too. But for what we're doing, it's more overwhelming for most so like people. That. It's too heavy of a burden most people fail really quickly and then they tap out. And a lot of times you can't process and put into practice what God's saying when you just read 30 chapters anyway. So let's just go really slow. Let's look at Jesus's words and some of the main teachings of scripture. Put them into practice. I've seen tons of fruit, tons of fruit from that tree. So that's what we would do to help them with scripture. Hopefully that's helpful.
2: Maybe just from your experience, what are some pitfalls that we might not realize are pitfalls? Things that look like a great idea when you're getting going but might not head in the right direction long-term. I think that really taking the time, somebody needs to be vetting, coaching, and equipping group leaders because they're going to be replicating what's happening. I think that one of the many things that keeps me awake at night is bad groups. When people have experiences with a bad group, they, that we like my wife and I have a personal friend right now and she's so hesitant to get into a group because she's been in a really bad one. And, and it was, you got to know, you just, I think we've got to be coming around our group leaders and just knowing what they're going to be doing. So I think that's a significant pitfall is we don't need to be doing all the ministry, but somebody needs to be paying attention to who's leading these groups because that really is creating DNA for your disciple making movement within your church. That'd be one.
1: That's good. Uh, I'm thinking about some of those things too. I think one thing that churches often miss is relationship that you'll will lean towards process and strategy. Hey, check the box. I completed the program. I did the thing. And that is in it, in and of itself sufficient and sometimes obviously very helpful, but not always sufficient. And so I think you've got to be very careful to balance like a good process and framework with deep relationships. If people aren't really invested in their life, if they're not seeing disciple making a discipleship happen in the real corners of life, it may not take, and it'll just become a system. The other piece is personal. If leaders are trying to lead disciple making in their churches, but they're not living it out in their lives, it will never take. And we've seen plenty of examples of that. And so that's really a challenge to all of us who are leading in our churches. And you've got to live it out at home and in the ways that you've got to share your faith with your neighbors. You've got to take the steps you're asking people to take, or it will just be a program that's a, a flash in the pan. So those are real pitfalls that, that we have to be up against that everyone's up against. It's yeah. a great question well yeah
2: one more that i might just add is think through for somebody that maybe has not been in one of these disciple making environments like a group well we keep them from it and so it's for a lot of people they're just like man i'm not going to go over to some stranger's living room i don't know what's going to happen in there so try to remove that as a factor and the other could be you want me to be in a life room for life no for a semester Or for that's one of the things I think we love about Rooted, hey, 10 weeks is a pretty extensive amount of time, but it's 10 weeks. There's this finish line to it. So I think being able to get into people and say, and and I think even with micro groups, you grab two two or three people and say, hey, uh, would you do this with me? Let's try it out for, I don't know, would you recommend this? Maybe I'm giving something you wouldn't recommend. See, go for it. But just say, hey, why don't we try this till the end of the summer? And then we can evaluate how this is going.
1: I think, yeah, in six. We shoot for six months. It's a one-year commitment in microgroups, but it's okay, six months. It's the same principle. But it's six months, six months with us, and then like they go replicate the last six months. You yes. build them towards that. But for anybody, like there's always ebb and flow. It's people. It's people yes. business, so it's gonna be messy. You'll have people that tap out. Don't give up because of those things. But yeah,
2: right. Yeah, yeah. Th- the principle is the same. Yep. Yeah, you're giving somebody a, an endpoint so they can say, "Hey, I think I can jump in and do this."
1: It's great. Thank you. We got another question over here groups, there's an organic element to it. And I know it's new for you here, but how much is happening organically and how much do you have your,
2: your hand on it giving oversight and direction?
1: Yeah. From microgroups, how much oversight do we give? We're still learning that tension because we don't want to be high control. There's got to be a level of control. So it's reproducible. We want to make sure we're reproducing the same and right thing. So we don't really want people to say, take this and run with it. That's why we haven't advertised it because we really wanna say, come be a part of this so you're replicating the same thing. We're still learning what some of that like control, not control, but some of that accountability looks like. I think we have some gaps to fill with like ongoing encouragement and um, building up of our leaders and helping them in their second and third generations. Like those are some gaps we just haven't really crossed those bridges yet. So we're learning how to create community around that. That's gonna be really helpful. I think another piece too, back to pitfalls too, is prayer and fasting. If we fail to really saturate those things with prayer and fasting, I hate saying that, I don't like fasting, but like we got to, then I think we're missing. I just think we're missing. So there's a lot to that question and we could talk more offline if you want, but I feel like that's a gap that we have a ways to go in. Over here. Uh, you mentioned about having mm-hmm. scripture,
2: studying scripture and uh, applying scripture in the micro group.
1: Do you intentionally? build the uh, missional elements in your micro group. Now, if, well, are Uh, there activities throughout that six or eight months period? And if they are new believers, do they join the micro group or do they join other groups Mm -hmm. or wait until the next new season? Yeah, that's really good. good question. Yeah, we do have a missional emphasis in there. So we have trainings on the up, the in, and the out. So all three of those dimensions, there's a training or two to help propel those things forward. We have a a basic sheet that is your guide that we go through every week. It's the main play so that week five, I can say, it's your turn. You've seen me doing it. It's very palatable. Go ahead and read through. And it reviews the mission. Like we're called to fulfill the Great Commission. We want to see disciple-making movement in our nation, in our city, in our day. And so we're really praying for that. And we're keeping that in front of our people. We're reading some of those scriptures often. There's no rules on who can be in or out. There's people at other churches that are in. It's not even, we're not even trying to own it. We're just trying to help make disciples. New believers. uh, So I actually just made a call this today to a guy I'm inviting into my, my micro group. He came to church for the very first time on Easter at the invitation of a friend, got baptized, gave his life to Christ. And he came to our first step the next week. And I'm like, come on, dude, let's come into my micro group. Let me help disciple you. He doesn't know what he doesn't know. So fresh and so exciting. And so it can be for anybody on that spectrum. One thing that we've been cautioned in this space is don't just pick your seasoned, oldest, best leaders. They're not usually the ones that are going to take off disciple making right away. They've been conditioned and trained for now. I'm not saying don't do that. I've done that largely. There's some amazing people there, but don't count people out. A lot of times the people are going to make the most dent and fruit in disciple making of the people you least expect, much like the disciples Jesus chose. So that's just good advice along those lines. So it can be anybody. It wouldn't, some groups like that will take unbelievers. That's not really how we're set up necessarily. There'd be other places rooted would be a great place for people to start for some of that as well. And so we just kind of balance that depending on the situation. Really good question. For all the work and the ministry that you guys are doing. As someone who is not a part of the Trader's Point family, but loves to cheer you on from a distance, I just wanna say thanks. Thanks, Um, But the question that I had was going back to last session, in the main session, they talked about family discipleship. So can you maybe speak about what family discipleship looks like at Trader's Point? Is it follow the small group, micro group, model, or is there anything else that you guys do intentionally for families? I know right now you're in a series about the cumulative effect. So he kicked us off week one, but is there anything else that you guys do for family discipleship? It's a great question. Thanks, man. I'll go, you jump in first. Yeah.
2: Well, I'll I'll mention one thing because I see some of our kids staff back there. One of the things that they're really driving hard in is really trying to reinforce with our parents that the parents are the primary primary disciples of our kids, Mm -hmm. of their kids, and that we're not off setting that to the church like you bring our kids to church and you guys disciple them while we go into big church. And so our kids ministry is really trying to create efforts, initiatives, curriculum around that to really equip parents to disciple their kids effectively. So that'd be one thing that I would draw.
1: Yeah. Um, so we, we want to create resources for families and for parents specifically to disciple their kids. So we're taking steps in that direction. I know we have a big initiative on a parent equipping project. We have a lot of intentionality in our kids' spaces already to help them meet Jesus at their own level, to help them grow. And so we're trying to continue to move that forward. I think there are a lot of things we can still grow in to help really equip our families as a whole, take that disciple-making initiative. There are small groups. They try to have consistent groups in our kids' spaces. Same with youth. They're not necessarily microgroups. We do have some youth groups that are now utilizing Rooted, and so we're dabbling into that space as well. So we're trying to integrate them as much as we can. groups is probably not going to be a right space for kids, but we'll try to find ways to integrate some of those obedience-based principles into all of those things. Maybe one more question. Yeah. How do you suggest getting involved with prayer and fasting? What was the first part of it? How do you see what? How How do you suggest suggest getting involved involved in prayer and fasting? Listen to my interview with Shadonke a few hours ago. (laughs) My goodness, like we've heard this whole time, it's take a step, take a small step, start small to end big. We've got to do more things, I think, collectively that can lead the charge. And actually we are. We've got a few things coming down the pike where we're going to really put some emphasis around that and start small. What can you do today to start increasing your prayer and fasting? If you go to renew.org, there's an article on there by Paul Hugobar, hard last name to say, so you'll find it pretty easy, on prayer and fasting. And he did an interview or a talk with Shadanke as well. And he boiled down some baby steps you can take to start implementing a few simple prayers, praying that the Lord would send a workers into the harvest, that he would do signs and wonders, and that he would just really change our heart for disciple-making movement. And there's a few specific prayers there that I'm starting to pray that are beginning to help shift the way that I view prayer. That's a really good place to start. I don't mm-hmm. know if you have anything else to add, but I don't want to overdo it because that's it start small. Just do something you're not doing.
2: Yeah. And I think looking at uh, natural places during the year where that can be implemented. So Obviously, like the very beginning of the year in January, that's a great time. And a lot of times when you do 21 days of Mm -hmm. prayer and fasting, even as a staff and at the beginning of a new year, maybe in a a certain season, when it comes to fasting, you don't need to do the, you don't need to start with the 40 dayer. I think you can start with maybe it's a lunch once a week where you're fasting and you're praying there. And then I think even getting out just like a prayer journal and saying, hey, on Mondays, I'm going to spend, let's just start small. I'm going to spend 10 minutes in prayer. On Mondays, these are the things I'm going to pray for. On Tuesdays, these are the things I'm going to pray for. This is when I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for 10 minutes. And these are the things I'm going to pray for. So start small and begin to
1: get some of those reps under your belt. If you, the mini marathon happens in Indianapolis, a big marathon, half marathon. is happening in just a couple of weeks. And if you're going to run it in a couple of weeks and you've never ran, you're going to die. You're not going to run it. You're not going to make it. But if you wanted to run the mini marathon next year, what would you do? Mm. Just do that same thing. Take a few steps and start walking and then begin to run a mile and then begin to work your way to two miles. Set a goal for what you feel like and just see the fruit that comes from that. And it will begin to change you. And by the end, you'll see, wow, I can actually run this whole thing. Yeah. I think that's what we need to do in our disciple making and get people around you. I think that's a missing piece a lot of times is we don't bring people around us for accountability and encouragement. Bring people in your family, bring people in your small group, micro group, whatever that looks like, to really encourage and hold you accountable to the things you feel like God wants you to do, which prayer and fasting should be at the top of that list. Great questions. Thank you guys so much. I'd like to end our time just having, maybe Aaron, if you would just pray for us to to take steps in disciple making, to continue to try to fulfill the great commission on our day and for the people who are listening at other churches, encourage them too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Love to. Father, we... uh, Come to you today, and it's such an honor and a privilege to to serve you in this way. To to not only give our lives to you as Lord and Savior, but now to be in this with you, that you've shared the mission with us. And so, uh, God, that's that can be an overwhelming task with the conditions of the world and just all of our um, busy schedules and our own maybe insecurities and fears. Um, we just uh, come to you now. We know that uh, this is not only the way that Jesus showed us how to do it, this is the only way that we can do it for us to yield the kind of fruit that is needed to bring about transformation. And so, Father, I just pray that those who are here today would be inspired, would feel equipped with a tool or two, would be willing to take a couple of steps in this direction. And uh, Father, I just ask that you would honor our efforts to make disciples, would disciple others and father give us wisdom give us discernment give us grit and faithfulness as as we seek to make an impact upon this hurting world with the good news of jesus christ we ask this today in jesus name amen amen Amen.
0: thanks so much for listening to the episode everybody hope that you were encouraged by the last four track sessions that happened in the auditorium at the most recent forum. Up next, you're going to be hearing from Re-Up Men's Movement. And after that, we've got a special episode in the works where I get the privilege of interviewing Anthony Walker from the podcast, Scripture in Black and White. Anthony hosts that podcast with our point leader, Bobby Harrington. So I'm so excited to just ask him some questions about discipleship and about who he is and about that podcast. So stay tuned for that. Hit subscribe for that. And that episode is actually going to be the end of season 10 for the Disciple Makers podcast. And we are going to roll straight into season 11 with fresh content from the city tour that just happened in Nashville. I'm so excited. we got a lot of stuff happening at discipleship.org, and I can't wait to dive in with you. All right, everybody. Thanks for being a listener of this podcast. I appreciate you and your support, and I hope that you enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you.